0: I always encourage everyone on the team to really think about the humanity of the people who are using this. And not just a user persona, I don't mean like abstract, I mean real life. There are some points at which you should just say, this is not going to work and I'm not going to like bang my head onto the ground until I bleed out. Of the drivers of growth, my order of preference is organic, that's the best. Second best is marketing-driven because we can ramp it up and ramp it down. You don't have to lay people off. And then the third best would be sales.
1: From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. On this episode of Founder Real Talk, I have Stuart Butterfield, the founder and CEO of Slack as our guest. I interviewed Stuart live at GGV's recent Evolving Enterprise event. I hope you enjoy this really interesting interview. During my conversation with Stuart, you'll hear me refer to some very impressive business metrics. Updated May 2018 numbers for Slack include over 8 million daily active users, over 3 million paid users, with two-thirds of the Fortune 100 now a Slack customers, and Slack is truly global, with customers in more than 100 countries. We've got Stuart Butterfield here with us today. Stuart is founder and CEO of Slack. First met Stuart just over three years ago in February of 2015. Uh, It was about a year after the public launch of Slack the product, and during that time when we met, I remember him telling me that the company was under 100 people, was doing about 500,000 daily active users on the system and had, in terms of ARR, had just gotten to about a, a low double-digit millions. The company was really exciting but, but much earlier in its development. I definitely remember the meeting though because Stuart said to me there that he had big ambitions, it was clear from uh, even from that time. In his view, every knowledge worker on the planet was fair game for Slack. And he thought that the the primary element of a knowledge worker was shifting from Microsoft Office-type documents to a much wider variety of digital artifacts created by cloud services. And he had the vision then that a collaboration and messaging substrate layer would really be important for knowledge workers to take advantage of and make sense of all those new cloud services and digital artifacts. Fast forward to today, that's clearly been a really, really good bet. We got to invest in the company just over two years ago now, in early 2016, and have watched an incredible series of of growth events happen at the company. Today the the business is about a thousand people. Last time that Slack announced public metrics was six months ago in September of 2017, and at that time the the company announced they'd surpassed 200 million of ARR. quite a bit more than the low teens that we saw just two years earlier, and um, also now over six million of DAU as well. So Stuart's gonna share some of the magic that has created Slack with us today, so we'll all walk out of here knowing exactly how to build our companies with the same level of growth. So please join me in, in welcoming Stuart to the stage. So Stuart, what's the secret? Get super fucking lucky.
0: So, uh, right place, right time, that that really helps. Kind of a counterintuitive name. Introduced a lot of resistance, so people were more likely to remember it. I honestly have no idea. I hope that I'm self-aware and smart enough to know that any attempted explanation is just going to be completely post-facto and not at all helpful
1: for anyone on a go-forward basis. There you have it. Let's just go get beers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But... Let me tease out a couple of things, or try to anyway. So, you know, your your background really is as a consumer consumer focused technologist. You started Game Never Ending, you built Flickr, and you really even started Slack as a game company, Tiny Spec, building glitch. Now you're sitting here as the CEO of probably the fastest growing enterprise software company ever, at least amongst the top couple ever. Is that a happy accident or is there something about the consumer DNA that the company started with that's helping kind of catapult Slack forward?
0: Yeah, I think there is. Um, And and a lot of our team, we have a, a ton of people who came from, say, Salesforce and before that were like old school Oracle, so real enterprise background. But also we've hired from Google, from Facebook, from Twitter. And I think it helps. I think there's actually, there's another more fundamental theme though. So I'm, I just turned 45, so I went to college in the early 90s, 92. I got my first account on the school's Unix machine and was exposed to the internet. And it was probably like six months or so before the web became a real phenomenon and it kind of took off. So there wasn't much web then, but there was Usenet, there was email, there was a Unix program called Talk, which is like an early messaging program. There was IRC it just completely blew my mind. Like, it, it was amazing thing. I was always, uh, like, halfway into computers. When I was, when I was really young, um, we had an Apple II, and I taught myself to code horrible, stupid games in, in Apple Basic, but then it wasn't until I discovered the internet that I really uh, got deeply interested, and it's that use of computing technology to facilitate human interaction that I think is the common theme. So when blogging started, um, I was an enthusiastic blogger from like maybe 1999 through 2002 or something like that, and I couldn't keep it up. And I really wanted to start a game company, not because I'm interested in games per se, but I'm interested in play as a pretext for social interaction. So I would watch my father play bridge. He wouldn't play Bridge against the computer because there's no human on the other end, so it wasn't as fun. But he also wouldn't have invited those same three people over to the house just to hang out. There was something about the game of Bridge, the trash talking, the competitive, the exercising, that analytical part of the brain that made it much more interesting. So the game was like a whole world collaboratively created, way too intellectual, not a good commercial idea. I learned that once and then had to learn it again. And when we switched to working on Flickr, it was the same thing. So it's computing technology to facilitate human interaction. And my favorite early review of Flickr, like this is early 2004, so like 14 years ago, was it's massively multiplayer photo sharing. Because it was the first time that people like, would put photos out there and have an interaction. And you could publicly search and you could form groups and stuff like that. Um, so we tried again with the game. And I look at Slack as, obviously, there's a, there's a whole bunch of layers on top of this now, but as um, that same Usenet, IRC-inspired, massively multiplayer game-inspired, social network-inspired
1: approach to helping people work together. Hmm. Given that you have some people from very traditional enterprise backgrounds and folks from consumer companies, how have you found ways to to, to bring out the best in everybody and, and still keep that heritage?
0: We kind of have two different businesses that are mutually supportive, um, but they they definitely they operate in, in fundamentally different ways. It's um, probably a, a little bit more than half of our revenue is like entirely self-serve, and there's a couple different ways we can we can talk about that. We can say like what sales touched as it appears in Salesforce, who's paying with credit cards versus who's on an invoice, the size of the organizations, and there's a fuzzy middle where like maybe a salesperson answered two questions, maybe they were really small but they had to be on an invoice or something like that but it's probably a, like 55 percent self-serve and 45 percent sales driven and it's slowly shifting so we're close to 50 50 i think two or three years from now at at um hopefully five or 10x the scale it'll be more like 60 40 but even our biggest customers and a lot of our biggest customers are other enterprise software companies so like literally All of them started self-serve. All of them started with like a work group, five people, eight people, who were really interested and curious, didn't go through the procurement process, didn't talk to anyone in policy or legal or security or IT or any of the places they were supposed to talk to, um, just took out their credit card and paid for it. And that became ultimately the best possible kind of lead. So when we first kind of wrapped our heads around how we wanted to talk about this internally, it was the infinity symbol but with some arrows on it to, like, to indicate there was a flow, and the self-serve business, which we internally call retail, and then the sales-driven business, which we internally call bespoke on the other side, and having those big, like the marquee customers, um, big customers in retail, in government, in academia, in like shipping and logistics and just like everything. All of those, uh, like the big names, help reinforce this as a tool that is trustworthy for the smaller customers, which are the ones that eventually become big customers.
1: So kind of that self-reinforcing wheel there. Yeah. Great, so the founding of Slack is is now, there's a lot of mythology around your pivot. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to get into the the details of pivot, but I think for this group, given they have got a lot of entrepreneurs in the room, uh, it'd be helpful to talk about, like, the process you went through, to think about, okay, this isn't working, what are we going to do next, wait a minute, this tool we built for ourselves maybe our business, mm-hmm. and then how you dealt with the aftermath of that decision, yeah you know, dealing with, with employees, dealing with your investors at the time, because um, that's, that's a big change, and a lot, of, you know, a lot of people who are starting younger companies obviously have to think about If it's not full pivot, just reorientation over time. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts there.
0: Yeah, it's a a really tough one. So, I mean, first of all, there are distinct decisions. One was to shut down the game, and then at some time passes, and then we decided that we're going to pursue Slack because there's other ideas, and we debated, or do we want to shut the company down, start a new company, all that kind of stuff. So for the first one, it's interesting because you hear, like, in the lamest pop, parts of Instagram, like just follow your dreams, I don't know why I'm blaming that on Instagram, just like as a regular pop culture phenomenon, um, if you just believe hard enough it'll happen, all the way to the potentially more rigorous academically backed research into perseverance and grit and resilience and all those things, Um, and you have to persist in your belief beyond the point at which it's reasonable. And I think that's true, and yet, also, there are some points at which you should just say, this is not going to work, and I'm not going to, like, bang my head onto the ground until I bleed out.
1: And We don't want anyone bleeding out no, here. No one, no one bleed out. I, I
0: don't remember, there's like a, a saying, or like certainly a, a concept, that like, if you thought about firing someone, you should just definitely fire them. Um, like if you, if I don't mean that if it, you, it occurs to you for a millisecond, but if you have had persistent thoughts about whether you should fire someone, you should just definitely fire them. And it was a little bit the same with this. So if you ever thought I should give up on this business, that's not an indication that you should just definitely give up on the business right away. But there was a point at which I realized that I had lost faith, right? I didn't believe. I thought that I could probably will myself to pretend and go through the day like I believed and like maybe be really plausible and convince people, but I didn't. I didn't actually believe, and at that point I feel like the chance of ultimate success of that, like, working out is about zero percent. You know, like, maybe some miracle happens, and that was it. So that was at, like, 2 a.m., and I had a lot of, like, sleepless nights around this this period, and next morning I was up early, wrote to the board, wrote to the co-founders, and just said, I'm done, we're not gonna do this anymore. And it wasn't like an invitation to discuss whether we're gonna do it. And I wasn't trying to be dictatorial about that, but it's, um, the realization was just like, this is, is not gonna work. And I had tried everything, right? So we don't need to get deep into the details. But the problem was just kind of classic leaky bucket, we would attract users. Uh, There's a bunch of metrics that were really exciting. ARPU was very high and we got a lot of registered users but people just weren't sticking around and it was always like the next thing is going to fix it. The next thing is going to fix it. We had a, a bunch of amazing ideas and we executed actually like at a like an A++ level, like people were just really moving, but it was the fundamental idea didn't work. So on the other side of that, it was a really interesting experience. So first of all, it's awful. It was terrible. I don't recommend it. Um, maybe character building in some sense. We were lucky enough to shut the company down when we still had like five and a half million dollars in the bank so we could afford to do things in a nice and elegant way. We made sure that everyone got a job and we took all the assets and the material that we had created for the game and made them part of the public domain. We offered all of the customers their money back or they could let us keep it or we could donate to charities. So you're able to do that and, and kind of earn some good karma, but it still, it sucks. I mean, and I've told this story many times, but the morning that I told the employees, like the, now it's two days after this, telling the board and the co-founders, stand up, we're having a special all-hands, everyone's already nervous because why are we having an all-hands today? People call in on on video and I'm standing in the room. I didn't even get like into the first sentence before I start crying. And I'm looking at this one engineer who like three months earlier, after uh, uh, like a year of convincing him, of cajoling him, had moved to another city, like sold his house, bought a new house, moved away from his in-laws who were helping take care of his, like at the time, six-month-old daughter, and I had to tell him he doesn't have a job anymore. So there's no, like I don't wanna make it sound like it's glamorous and cool and stuff like that. It it's really off, I a mean, happy ending because we hired him back and now he works at Slack and everything's super cool, but it didn't necessarily come out that way. And then I had the interesting interactions. I'd be curious to know if you would've had the same reaction, but I think this is the VC mindset. It's like, well, we've already lost a third of our money on these idiots, so there's no point getting a third back. Just keep going, roll the dice, see if you can do something. And if I was a greedier person, I was like, I should have been, damn, we should have just started a new company and recapped it. But we didn't, and I know that's fine. But there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for whatever was next. And I remember, and I'm actually having dinner with Ben Horowitz tonight, and I tease them about this all the time, I went to go to do the Anderson Horowitz partner meeting, which I hadn't done in a couple years, and say like, here's what we're gonna do instead. It's this thing called Slack, it's enterprise software. One day, if we're hugely successful and we get like 100% of the TAM, we would have $100 million in revenue and thereby be a billion dollar company. And they were like, good luck with your stupid thing. And I don't mean to suggest that they weren't personally supportive. They were in- incredibly supportive. So it was Excel um, and all of our other investors at that time. But uh, there wasn't a-, a huge belief in this. And there also, been note that w- what we thought was, like, the maximum. Ten years in, we do everything perfect. It's a $100 million a year business. So we didn't realize how big it was going to be. Interesting.
1: Okay, so one of the reasons it got so much bigger than you initially thought it might was, you know... Uh, a go-to-market model that was incredibly organic, Mm -hmm. self-service, and really rapid customer adoption. You've talked a lot about uh, craftsmanship as an important element of your business and how you've built your product and been very intentional about that. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of craftsmanship and anything else you think that helped drive that early success, that, that very rapid customer adoption?
0: Yeah, so uh, I, I had the experience, we started Flickr. Flickr was not around for very long as an independent company, it got bought by Yahoo. I had never worked at a large company before. Yahoo at the time was about uh, like 10 or 11,000 people. And I'd never been exposed to real Enterprise software before, and I was like, oh my god, this is ridiculous. Like, the thing we use for the 401k and the payroll, booking vacation, the performance reviews, all the internal communication tools. I mean, nothing wrong with yeah, it was just that's what the vendors were like, and you know, the kind of classic you don't sell to the end users, and so it doesn't matter. And I remember thinking back then, like, I should get into enterprise software because this shit looks easy. Um, (laughs) So, I remember being an end user. I always encourage everyone on the team to really think about the humanity of the people who are using this and not just like a user persona. I don't mean like abstract, I mean specific. I mean this person got in a fight with their spouse the night before and they're stressed because their kid is not doing well in school and they had to take them and now they're gonna be late and it started raining. I mean, like the real life, like they think they might have ulcerative colitis or like just, you know, like then they sit down and now they're gonna wait for the app to launch and now it takes four seconds instead of one second. So how does that show up in NPS for us down the road? I think that obviously made a big difference. I mean, the fact that people could try it on their own because we chose the freemium model, and I'm a believer in survivorship bias, so it's true that we did a whole bunch of things right in the beginning. I don't want to say that's because we're such geniuses, but like I'm here because we did a bunch of things right, and if we were equally smart and had made different choices, I wouldn't be here, right? But the, the freemium model and the care and attention of human beings combined to people try it, they use it, they like it, and unlike any other piece of enterprise software virtually except for maybe some of the companies here today in 2018 and more broadly, they would tweet about it. They would tell their friends, like at the cafe, they would say, hey, we're using this great software at work, I love it, and that just, that doesn't mm-hmm. happen, right? So that was a huge assist, and we found, you know, very difficult to get off the ground initially. Like, the, oh, let me back up, November 2012, decided to shut down the game. December 2012 decided we were gonna make Slack. January 2013, we started working on it. March 2013, we were able to, to use it, look, we had done enough. By about May of 2013, we tried to convince some other people to use it and realize how hard that was gonna be because um, we're trying to convince a whole group of people to change a fundamental behavior all at once. August, we did kind of a, a private beta and then February 2014, we actually launched. So uh, I don't even really remember what the question was now.
1: Thank you for the timeline. <laughs> going back to the model, right, yep. and being able to you know, get this, this flywheel going so quickly and driving growth, it sounds like your focus on product was yep. a big part of that.
0: I um, remember where we were going with this. So it? as hard as it was to get a company to really try it, and when I say really try it, it wasn't like someone downloaded the app and then launched it once, right? Like you actually have to get other people in. The minimum activation metric for us is three people have a created account, so you have to have sent the invites, they have to have accepted the invites, and 50 messages sent. So like, that's like zero. That's the very beginning of it. Once you get someone to try it, though, very likely to persist. Um, once someone gets like, further on down, like the, what we internally call second activation is 2,000 messages sent, irrespective of anything else. I don't know if this is still true because I haven't done this in a long time. Customers who got to like the third activation point, almost all of them are still using Slack. In fact, since we started charging a little over four years ago, the cumulative churn all across all teams is about 20%. So probably about the rate of bankruptcy for, the, for our customer companies. Um, and if you get to really large organizations, it's even less than that. It was like 10 or 15 basis points of churn a month. So the flip side was, hard to get them to use it, once you get them, that's it. And when people left the, that company, they would go to another one and they would show up and they'd be like, oh right, they don't use Slack here, this is a disaster, hey everyone, we have to use Slack. Um, and it just started like revving up and revving up and revving up.
1: You alluded to earlier that you've, you've got now some traditional people on your team as well, and we were we were talking before the panel about how difficult it is for companies who have a heritage in high velocity selling and very organic growth to try to layer in kind of a more traditional enterprise go to market on top of that mm-hmm. you know many companies have tried and not been su- so successful talk about the decision to add professional sales to your business? Was this something you had always thought you'd do or did you change your mind at some point? And then why do you think it's been so successful?
0: All right, so I don't remember if I changed my mind. People told me that I said that I didn't ever want to have salespeople. I'm almost positive I never said i never want to have salespeople, but I definitely did say of the drivers of growth, my order of preference is organic. That's the best. Second best is marketing-driven because we can ramp it up and ramp it down. Uh, you don't have to lay people off if you if you um, overspend a little bit. And then the third best would be sales. So it's not a criticism of sales at all, but it is of the, the drivers of growth. Maybe still my third favorite, which makes the salespeople feel bad even though I don't mean to. But I, I personally didn't have the experience, right? So my eyes are open, and still my eyes are opened, even after uh, years. And I'm learning down to the level of uh, we have a, a product called Enterprise Grid. And Enterprise Grid, you have this kind of mesh where you can add as many Slack workspaces as you want and you have one identity within that and people can belong to multiple workspaces and they can share channels. So many of you use Slack, I bet, and some of you will have used Slack in teams of larger than 100 people, a handful larger than 500, maybe some of you have used it larger than 1,000, but there's, like, there's places where there's tens of thousands of people all using Slack and you can't have them all on the same team. There's a thing called the quick switcher in the desktop, command K, I recommend everyone use it. Or in the mobile app, you just tap the little thing to search to choose your channel. And on the desktop, we did what's called a cross-team quick switcher. So when you search for a channel, it searches channels across all of your different workspaces in Enterprise Grid. We didn't do that on mobile. So I'm sorry, there's a lot lot of wind up. So I send a nasty DM to our head of product for Enterprise, like, how come this isn't a priority? This drives me nuts every single day. It's been out for a year. And the answer is that the iOS engineers on Enterprise are literally working on a feature for two customers for an admin preference to disable copy and pasting of text, even though you can still take screenshots and stuff like that. So I get it. That is what they should be doing. I understand the whole context, but it's not my intuition, right? Like, my intuition is not that we would prioritize something that there was a legitimate need from a customer for compliance related reasons. And the good news is that great salespeople have a lot of empathy and are excellent listeners and are patient with people who don't understand it at first so they're good for me. Like, just like in the same way that they're, they're good for customers, they're very patient, maybe even more patient with me than they are with customers and sit me down and explain stuff. But it actually it hasn't been that much of a struggle because mm-hmm. The whole sales organization, no matter where they came from, truly appreciate that they get to go into a customer's office, and they might have a very skeptical CSO, they might have a very skeptical uh, procurement team, they might have like a rigorous vendor approval process, they might have like a you know kind of a long protracted negotiation on the commercial terms and stuff like that. But on the other side of the table, there's definitely going to be at least one or two, sometimes three people who are like, "Come on, let's go! I want to use Slack! I want to use Slack! I want to use Slack!" who are pushing on the other side, and if they didn't have that, why would their life be more difficult?
1: Yep. You've alluded to like, some of your daily activity now includes like going to Philadelphia or New York and dealing with big customers. Probably not something you've had a lot of experience with in your prior lives, no. and I'm guessing that this is a pretty new muscle for the company to be exercising. What's it been like to sell to enterprises and what changes have you had to make in your organization? What, what have been some of the surprises now that you're really kind of going full force at Enterprise?
0: Um, I would say two things, so one from the customer side and one from our side to the customer. So on the customer side, Jeff Smith, who's the CIO at IBM until maybe uh, eight months ago or, or maybe a year ago, I got to meet him. I hadn't talked to anyone at IBM except for one, my one contact there, and they had got to 20,000 or so users of the lock, 25,000. I had thought of CIOs, like my platonic ideal of what a CIO was, uh, was not like Jeff. They were there to enable people and they were in a supporting role. In contrast, and now I know better, I've met a lot more CIOs, he was very proactive. He had an agenda and he was trying to take this, you know, 480,000 employee organization with, Uh, hundreds of thousands of developers, some of whom had been working with the same tools, some of which were developed at IBM for like literally decades, and they had a way that they did things and moved them to agile methodologies. And so he thought of Slack as an instrument of that, that this was the way he used the phrase operationalizing culture. So that was one thing, to remember that CIO, CMO, CTO, director of this, manager of that, engineer, Salesperson, whatever. Everyone has an agenda. Like they're trying to accomplish something, and if you can attune yourself to that, it's a lot more effective. So, what I realized, you know, thinking about what I wanted for Slack, the company, obviously, I have an agenda too, and and every CEO here does as well. Like, there's always something that you're trying to do. There's always something next, and that can be, you know, if you're some big multinational, you're divesting of one-line of business or you're acquiring something else, you're trying to merge two things together, you're going from being vertically integrated to not, or it can just be like, let's get this next version of the product out or let's ramp up sales or whatever it is. And no matter what the agenda is, the internal communication is the highest leverage activity to accomplish that result. And Slack is an incredibly effective tool and incredibly malleable in terms of the channel membership and the structure and how communication flows through the organization to accomplish whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And that kind of wrap has gotten better and better and better and more and more effective. Um, And I genuinely believe that if you have to choose a technology, maybe AI, maybe machine learning, uh, I don't know, autonomous something, depending on what kind of uh, business you're in, but if you have to choose a single category of product that will be the most impactful change in IT for most large organizations over the next decade, it will be the move to Slack or Microsoft Teams or the Stride or whatever other competitor, because we're not gonna have 100% market share, but nothing will make as much of a difference as that. Not because like we're such geniuses again, but because the amount of software that people are using is just continuing to go up and up and up. The proliferation of tools is incredible. Mm. Some of you will remember when there was like five apps that you had. Like it was 1979, the Visical came out with their spreadsheet and like probably the most important single application in all history. Early 80s, there was word processing. So now you have two apps and that's it. And by like the early 2000s, there's like 100. We're a company of a thousand people. We buy from 350 different vendors. Three hundred and fifty different vendors i can 't even name them all, but like when you start going through the list it 's incredible there 's like a hundred plus just in engineering um, there 's probably close to the same amount just in marketing. And it's all of the classic ERP components, but it's also like a plug-in for our applicant tracking system, which by the way is a new category, that scans job descriptions to ensure that they're free of biased language. And that's something that's a SaaS tool that we pay for. In a world where there's a continued proliferation of software product categories, having something that is the central hub that everything plugs into is more and more valuable. So maybe it's true. Or maybe I'm just super good at convincing myself and then going on to convince executives and
1: customer so, companies. So enterprises are buying. Yeah. Okay. You've been really successful. You've engendered a lot of competition. You talked about Microsoft Teams and Atlassian. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, in the lead up to Microsoft's launch of Teams, which you were made aware of, you made a decision to do a very public like welcome Microsoft advertisement. Some of you may have seen it in the New York Times. Kind of a full page ad. Mm-hmm. You got a lot of... I'd say negative press yep. over that issue. Going back in time, would you do something like that again? What lessons did you learn what do you yeah, think other people uh, can derive from that? I think that?
0: we actually, we literally had an all hands this morning and we were talking about competition so I guess it's super fresh. So, well, definitely wouldn't have published that exact letter and if, even if we had like another half day, I think there's a, couple of phrases that had we changed them, it would have been received in a slightly different way because it was genuinely our advice to Microsoft. On the one hand, I don't regret it because that was our biggest day ever for signups, the day that Microsoft Teams launched. The next day was our second, or we broke the record again, so now is our record there were, uh, I might have the exact number wrong, I I think 109 articles written about the launch of Microsoft Teams, 100% of them mentioned Slack, and 107 out of the 109 had Slack in the headline, so we just fucked up their day. (laughs) Um, So from that perspective, I don't regret it. On the other hand, there was a negative reaction, much more here in the Bay Area than where I was when it happened. I was in New York and I was meeting with some people who had flown up from Atlanta that morning and they were super jazzed. They showed me the copy of the New York Times that they had shown to their boss that morning and gave me a high five and stuff like that. So anyway, here was the slide that we put up. This came from our general counsel, David Shellhase. paraphrasing him a little bit, but it was competitor aware customer obsessed. And so in retrospect, I think I would have done it because the point wasn't to think about it in terms of competition. And this is something, the more the competition heats up, and by the just for context, um, not everyone watches this as closely as I do, obviously. Think about IE versus Netscape. So like Netscape server was expensive and valuable and people needed it because there was no other alternative and then IE comes out with a server product that is free and i.e. the browser is free. And wow, that's a difficult challenge to withstand. So for us, it's not just that Microsoft Teams is free to people who use Office 365, it's that there's 100 million of them already and it's provisioned by default. So it's turned on for every single one of those companies unless you go and manually turn it off. So they have perfect distribution to all of those 100 million people and they're given away for free. The good news is it's not working, and uh, maybe I'll pause there because I'm not sure where you want to go with the question, but I can talk more about the dynamics there or the reaction.
1: Well, the specifics around Microsoft notwithstanding, the fact that you now have deep-pocketed competitors Mm -hmm. changes the game. And the fact that you're going after enterprises where, yes, there's lots of people who are like, I want Slack, I want Slack, but there are other influences that go on in large organizations. How do you navigate those landmines as you move in enterprise uh, successfully and, and where, you've, where you've had any hiccups? Like what have you tried to learn from those, those situations?
0: This might be sound naive, but I think there's just like one thing to learn, which is more and more and more about the mindset of the person that you're talking to, which is so the minds of the customer, more and more about what their concerns are, what their objectives are, what's influencing them and why. So I mean that matters, to the utmost in terms of making a competitive choice, customers generally do not believe or have this as, as a predisposition. From my perspective, we are asking for a, somewhere between two and five percent of the value that we create for our customers. So we're creating like a thousand dollars of value on a per employee basis, and we're asking for a hundred, depending on where you know what plan you're on and stuff like that, or you know, like that. It's, a, it's an order of magnitude. So no customers think that. Zero customers ever think that. In fact, because it's a new category and it's showing up as a new thing it's like it was zero dollars last year now you're saying four million dollars this year? What, this is nuts. But I can, I can hear that it's nuts from a company that has like 90 billion in revenue. So this is now, I don't know exactly how many zeros to put after the decimal but you know it's like, it's an incomprehensibly small percentage of anything that they can care about but this is what they care about. And I literally have had the whole company repeat after me in all hands, in the long term, the measure of our success will be the amount of value that we create for customers. I had to repeat it a couple times because it's just absolutely true. In the same way that people say about the public stock markets, in the short term, it's a voting machine, in the long term, it's a weighing machine. Sure, there's all kinds of historical accidents, and they're all kind of nasty tactics, and there's like weird things that can happen, but it's exceptionally rare for a company to be very successful commercially over the long term without some kind of scam. Like, you, you have to actually be delivering something that, that people truly appreciate and get value out of. Sounds good. As long as you keep on doing that, we'll be all right.
1: Seems like it's been working for you so far. Okay, so we're going to go to our speed round. Okay. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Just. Say the first thing that pops into your mind. Kay. You do some startup investing. What qualities do you look for in a founder and an opportunity?
0: I just invest when like VCs that I like say you should invest in this, or if it's a friend's
1: company. And otherwise, I don't really do much. So I'm busy. Okay. So look. So if you want Stuart to invest in your company, tell. Get some VC. To come find me. us first. <laughs> that's that's the answer there. Okay. Slack's really committed to diversity and inclusion. Why?
0: I do believe that we'll get better business results, that's honestly not why, because I think that those studies that say that are kind of like studies that say, fat is bad for you, now sugar is bad for you, go back and forth, it's hard to actually, like econometrics is a hard science, but because I've been around here for a while, I have seen the massive amounts of wealth created and I've seen how concentrated it is and how powerful the networks are. This is not a lightning answer, so I'm gonna wrap it up. Um, but because I think it's a better thing for the world, and um, it makes Slack a more interesting place to work for me personally, and I think for everyone else.
1: Okay, you tweet out all kinds of interesting stuff that you're reading. Talk about like a favorite book or a source of information that's helped you as a, as a founder and a leader.
0: All right, well I got two recent ones, so this is, I have a heavy recency bias all the, always, but these were like very impactful. So one was called Crucial Conversations. I'm very bad at having difficult, or. I used to be very bad at having very (laughs) difficult conversations with people. This was like literally one simple trick kind of thing that was incredibly impactful for me. And that's a book? That's a book, it's called Crucial Conversations. And a second book, a woman on our customer experience team two years ago made a beautiful inscription in the beginning of the, of the book. It's called Leadership and Self-Deception. And I was like, oh, that sounds like really like something I could use. And I put it on the coffee table, kind of like so maybe I'll remember to read it. And then uh, after a year, I was like, hmm, I should probably really read this book. It definitely sounds like something I could use. And I put it on my bedside table and then a year later, I finally read it. I wish I had read it before. Uh, I just bought it for the whole senior leadership team, for the whole exec team, and then the feedback was, let's buy this for the whole senior leadership team, so I just gave it out to them. Really amazing.
1: Leadership I mean,
0: and? Leadership and self-deception is the name of the okay. book.
1: Self-deception, yeah, all Yeah, it's right.
0: like three or four hours. By the way, it's not a masterpiece of fiction, so don't, this is not gonna be like Ulysses or Moby Dick or something like that, it's
1: more practical. Okay, last question for you. And we asked this one of Sarah also, she had a great answer. Yeah. So no pressure. What's the best interview question you like to ask when you hire people? Yes.
0: Um, I'm gonna preface this by saying that I'm not a great interviewer and so I don't do that thing where everyone has to, I have to interview everyone because I feel like I have a 50-50 hit rate. But my most recent one that I, I do like this, the question is, so at some point you were born and now you're here, what happened in between? And the reason I like that is, first of all, like you get a sense of what either what someone prioritizes or what they think that they should prioritize when they're speaking to me about the editorial, like, is it about their childhood and their family, where they grew up? Is it about, like, does it start in college? Does it start with their first, like, real significant job on their current career trajectory? Does it start with, like, their interests or hobbies? I I just think it's a fascinating question, and, you know, I try to be very friendly, so it's not like a high-pressure, like, I'm trying to trick you or something like that interview question, but it is really fascinating to think of, like, if you're asked to say what is the story of your life, where do you start?
1: Well, for Stuart, what's happened in between has been pretty amazing and we're looking forward to more great stuff out of Slack. So thanks so much for, for coming here and joining us yeah. joining us, and uh, please, everybody, help me in thanking Stuart. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, you can find all our episodes on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com or at Apple Podcasts overcast soundcloud spotify or wherever you find your podcasts please rate us and share as well to help others find this podcast we're produced by ted karstensen and his team at heavy we want to thank ted for his support our theme song is by grapes ggv capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in silicon valley shanghai and beijing we've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000 from seed to pre-ipo We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Thanks for listening.